Folks, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show, and so great to bring back a friend of the program, a guy who dropped some serious knowledge in round one, and felt we could do it again. Reggie McBride, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. Reggie, you know, like, how do you think it works? Like, you know, as you've moved along, you're, in this century, you've been you know, as busy or as in demand as ever, um, as a bass player, it's just, you know, like Herbie found you or Herbie came calling and other cats came calling. I mean, how does it work in the, in the, in the business, like in your career? I mean, how quickly were you considered a household name as far as a first call studio bassist or because you, were just sort of dwelling in the studio with Stevie for a while, Cyrita, many. Did you kind of fly below the radar a little bit? Uh, yeah, I think at that time, um, if you played on it, uh, your name was, became hot. You know, you, you were the, you were the guy, uh, the go-to guy to, uh, or the new guy, you know, for, for what, for what it's worth. It's like, uh, even I understood that record labels even put your name on a list of people to call mm. for sessions. And, uh, if, um, they needed some. There, there were several things or items like that that uh, were developed. You know, like it was an answering service called Your Girl. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Whoa, whoa! I mean, I do. I know about Radio Registry in New York. What is what is this one? Your Girl was uh, it's like a dispatch, and you just called in to them and say my name is Reggie McBride and it had a live uh, lady or man to answer the phone and they were hooked up with every recording studio and um, I don't know you know what 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 else but uh, they had it so that you could call in and if anybody needed a bass player all they needed to do was call this number. Huh. Or if they needed an orchestra, they would call this number. And it was like a dispatch. So uh, your girl would call you and check your availability for, you know, uh, we want to know if you're available from uh, 10 to 1 and then 2 to 6. That was the hours. And then six to midnight, or they call it golden time. <laughs> um, this 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 was in L.A. This was in L.A. Yeah. Wow. Not many people knew about it. I I mean, dude, I when would you say? I mean, when did this start? Was this in the eighties? I I, don't, I mean, nobody. And I've interviewed. You know, all the, the, I mean, I don't care, Dean Parks or Leland Sklar, all these guys, I've never heard of that service. Mm. 
Yeah, I'm sure they would know about it. I, I, at least I think so. Wow. And if you were, uh, you just needed to call and check in and say, you know, is there any work for me today? And it was like dispatch. And they say, yeah, it's uh, be it um, uh, Larrabee at, uh, or be it uh, RCA at uh, 10. You got a 10 to 1 and then you have a 2 to 6 at uh, RCA or you have a uh, uh, 1 at, uh, in the evening with uh, uh, producer uh, and uh, they would say his name and they would say well you know this session is from 6 to midnight so this is the call and uh, all you had to do was show up you have your cartage um they would call your cartage, as a matter of fact, if you got that busy, and make sure that your cartage was on time and your gear met you at the studio. You would say and, that this was this was this in the the seventies, the eighties, or even closer to when was this? I didn't know exactly when it started, but uh, I knew about, found out about it in the 70s. And I'd say about 19, oh, see, 76, 77. I'm curious about, like, um, were you in a situation with Stevie that, not just because of the work, but were you, like, did you have to turn down a lot of studio gigs because, or because you were just working with him and you were in the studio for months at a time? Yeah. Uh, I was really busy with him. And then uh, what happened was I left the group and, uh, you know, he had us on um, retainer. And so I ended up leaving the group because I got a better offer with Rare Earth. You got a better offer? Well, it was, it was, uh, I got an offer to go with Rare Earth and be a part of the band and be a part of the corporation and be, uh, uh, this, you know, a part of the band, a member of the band. Absolutely. Yeah. What, can you talk a little bit about their history in the sense of, uh, you know, I'm not, it's funny, I see their records. I mean, they're from Detroit. They they actually came, made the pilgrimage uh, out to L.A. along with Barry Gordy. I, I mean, we, I, we, you know, it's very well documented, like the, the Funk Brothers were pretty much left high and dry, you know, um, when when Barry moved out there, and a lot of those guys had to go out there anyway and sort of figure make it up on the fly. But where did where did Rare Earth come? I mean, they when they they formed originally as the Sunliners. Did you were you hip to them in Detroit? Just take me through the idea of of their trek from Detroit to L.A. Well, from what I understood, I didn't know 
I didn't find out about the Sunliners until later on. And uh, I got the call. I was working. I was working with Ed James. Wow. And uh, we were playing live at the Troubadour, and uh, Richard Perry would come and sit in in the front and, and right in front of me. Oh my dear God! And he would watch me every single day. I just want to be clear: you left. You were you left Stevie to 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 join Etta and play live with her, or how did that work? Well, I was working with Stevie and Etta at the same time. They were they were playing together. No, they weren't playing together. It's just that uh, I was uh, what I was playing. I would whenever I had days off with Stevie, I would play with. Uh, <laughs> that's a good, that's insane, man. That, that's I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you were just playing. You your calendar was pretty full, uh, and. So you were gigging, and Edda was playing the troubadour. Who was, who was in that rhythm set? Who was on drums? Uh, Greg Thomas was on drums. Oh my God, that dude is a bad drummer. I know that cat. I think he's passed away. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think so. So 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 Richard Perry would just stare at you in the front row every night. Yeah, and somebody walked up to me one night, and I think it was his secretary, Carol Pinkers. And she said to me, um, uh, Richard's going to be in touch with you. <laughs> That's all she said. Or, or something to that nature. Right. I said, who's Richard? <laughs> And she said, Richard Perry. I said, well, you know, that name sounds important, <laughs> which it was. Yeah, he was producing everybody. Everybody and, uh, did. He came to, and I'll tell you what, was Trevor Lawrence was involved. Oh, my. I can't believe you just dropped his name, man. That I did a great interview with that cat. What a great fuck. What a great oh, cat. Man. Was he? So he I, was. I knew him from the Stevie Wonder records. Right, right. And he, um, I guess he he was one that kind of engineered me to be with uh, with Etta because, you know, he explained to Stevie, which I'm sure he did. You know that, that uh, you know Etta needs a bass player, so if you don't mind. We'd like to use Reggie whenever you're not busy, you know, we put it to him like that. And I think that uh, Stevie didn't mind me going and playing with that. So in the meanwhile, you know, I, I was playing, we were playing weekly, I think, at the, at the Troubadour. Great band. Great Thomas, William Smith, uh, Smitty. Oh, Smitty, are you, this is the that's the greasiest band I've ever heard of in my life, dude. Oh, yeah. And Buzzy Feetin' on guitar. Oh, my dear, dear. Have you talked to Buzz lately? Not lately, no. Because he's battling cancer right now. Yeah, that's what I understood. Um, dude, Buzzy Feetin', Greg Thomas, 
Smitty McBride, Etta. And Bobby Keys and Trevor Lawrence on horns. Bobby Keys, the guy from Rolling Stones? Yes. Oh, my dear God. Good. Was there, like, were you... Like you didn't need the bread per se, but did, was the bread was it good bread or were you just basically like, this is too much fun to pass up? Well, it was both. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just I'm always curious about like, you know, what like a week or with Etta at the Troubadour would pay. You know, I mean that, you know, Stevie being on retainer, um, you know. You're you're pretty you know you're you're doing okay. I'm just wondering what those live gigs were if they were. You know, none of you got. I mean, I I shouldn't say that, but like, I mean, did anybody in the band? Nobody was starving to death. Everybody was pretty much ensconced in the studio scene. You know. Yeah, that's true. And, and um, when. Uh, I was with Etta, you know, I, Trevor and them were in a studio. Uh, they'd be with Stevie and, you know, Trevor would be with a whole, whole bunch of people. And uh, so there wasn't a, really a question about bread. It was just the excitement of playing with Etta James was, uh, was, was just electrifying. And, uh, Nobody, I mean, no matter what I was doing, or no matter what anybody was doing, if Etta called, it was like, okay, let's shut down, because we're going we gonna to back her up. <laughs> You're right. right. And the, 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 the power on the stage was just so strong that uh, for one reason or another, we couldn't turn down the gig. I mean, we, had, we just had to, you know, plan with Etta, you know. And... Um, uh, yeah, we we played the Troubadour, and we went to San Francisco. We used to play up there. Where would you play up there? Do you remember? Um, like, would you play like the Keystone Corner was a rock club? Would you play Winterland? Would I mean, where would I'm trying to think about the places you could possibly play? Yeah, the Winterland sounds familiar. Yeah, Fillmore. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, where else did we play? Uh, so you were also the, if 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 she had little regional tours, you'd go with. Did you go on the road with her across the country or overseas at all, or was it mainly regional? Uh, at that time, it was it was mainly uh, regional, but later on, it became. Uh, uh, we would go to Europe and we'd do the festival over there. Wow. We'd go to Germany and, and France and, and uh, mainly uh, England, Germany, the mainstream. Absolutely. I mean, she was popular overseas as well. Um, yeah. You know, there's before we get into rare earth, I, I just there's a few guys I wanted to ask you about. Um, like, when was the first time you got hip to George Porter and the Meters? Those guys, I mean, that second line thing they were doing, the way they were, 
the way they had that rhythm locked down, uh, were you hip to, did you get hip to them right away or when did you get hip to, to, to what they were doing? First time I saw them play live was on Saturday Night Live. When um, I was playing with Levon Helm and uh, the, the uh, RCO All Stars? The RCO All Stars. Reggie McBride, stop right now, dude. This morning, right. m- this morning I'm, I'm, my younger daughter and I are sitting at the table. We're playing Levon Helm and the RCO All Stars. Now, I know you weren't on those albums, but. How did wait? So you, um, how did that wind up happening? Because I mean, Duck Dunn was it was Duck and Cropper. The, the, the that's insane. Yeah, uh, I, I think um, Mac Rabinac got me in. Oh, you okay? So 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 once wait, how did you first meet Doctor John? Well, let's see. Um, Well, for one thing, he didn't live far from me because he lived in Studio City. And I was in North Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. This is like, and, this, we're, uh, we're talking like late 70s here? Yeah. 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 And uh, I used to hang out with Mac. That is you know, so beautiful, man. I freaking, I, did, I love that man so much, dude. I did too. And we used to play together every so often. But I would go to his house and, and, and hang out. You know, we would visit each other. And uh, we got to know each other. And we did a lot of studio stuff together because we were playing with um, Van Morrison. We did his record. And um, Van didn't like the band, or he didn't like the keyboard player he had so Mac ended up coming in in England a period of uh, transition was the record period of transition that record yes Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, it was a bunch of fun man and 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 so we did end up doing a whole slew of dates together me me and Mac and and whoever whoever else was involved uh and then, and then they said, you want to do Saturday Night Live? It's going to be Cleveland Helms. It's going to be you. It's going to be Mac. Uh, Fred. Fred Carter Jr. Fred Carter Jr. A legendary character. Unbelievable. Yeah. But Paul Butterfield. Oh, my God. So you flew to, did they t- were they taping in L.A. or did you go to New York? We went to New York. You went to New York, and that was that the first time that you met Levon. Yeah, that was the first time I met Levon. Wow. Yeah. That is so. Yeah, that was fun. Man, that is so beautiful. I mean, Jesus, that just so going back. So, um, well. Uh, there, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about before Rare Earth is uh, this. I had this album for a, really a minute and I couldn't get my ear around it. And I 
gave it to a great drummer friend of mine, and I'm glad I gave it away, but I'm now I'm jonesing for it back because it was Tonto, It's About Time, Malcolm Cecil. Yeah. How did you wind up on that particular... That album is incredibly progressive album. Yeah. Well, Malcolm and uh, Bob Margoloff, they built Tonto. And uh, Tonto used to be camped out with us in the uh, record plant in the back room. Oh, my God. My kids played with Tonto. I played with Tonto. <laughs> that is so classic. <laughs> How did now? I'm just help me. Who who is this Bobcat? I'm you know I'm, I'm trying to figure out like how. I mean Stevie Stevie, but uh, Tonto also had the pull to get that much studio time and the record plant. Yeah, uh, I think Stevie would come in and do overdubs with it on at the time that I was with Stevie. Uh, I think they had just done Talking Book, which they did in New York. And uh, they brought they brought the whole machine in and put it in the back room of the record plant, oh. Studio B. And uh, they dedicated that booth for nothing but Tonto. And um, so Bob Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil were were the engine behind Stevie. You know they they produced him and. Uh, uh, Pretty much uh, engineered, I believe, all his records from Talking Book to fulfilling his personality. And uh, through his latest, they had done pretty much everything. And, uh, you know, they were, they were the guys that built that, uh, built Tonto. Uh, but they would be there every day at the record plant. So I, I'm, you're just blowing me away a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an aficionado of Stevie Wonder, but um, were were they connected with him back in Detroit, or they only connected with him out in L.A.? And ultimately, I guess the real question is, like, what does it mean to produce Stevie? I mean, did, were they were they able to offer meaningful suggestions uh, that ultimately led to the success of the albums. Like you told me last time, for instance, like mainly it was all coming out of Stevie's head, but ultimately what was it about those guys that helped make those records sound even better? Well, when I got with them, uh, like I said, they were a big influence in uh, the production. So the engineering and, you know, Bob Margloff would give him the advice. And uh, he took advice from everybody, including me, too. Right. You know, he said, well, Reggie, I want you to play on this song, which he already had the synth bass on. And, uh, you know, things like that. And I said, man, you already got it. <laughs> right, right. You don't, I don't need it. I, you don't need my bass. You got the synth bass. You don't going. need my bass. I did. And, you know. And we went in, into committee, you know, they they uh, would talk to Stevie and uh, we would all talk about it. And uh, Stevie said, yeah, I think you're right. 
you know, the synth bass is good. I said, yeah. I said, I hate to change it or try to top it you know, because you, I think you already got it, you know. And so, um, you know, just things like that from what I could see. And uh, what was what was their what was Tonto's rig about? You said they moved their whole rig into oh, what, yeah. what was that about? Because I mean, there's there's it's it's so I mean they had Tonto's expanding headband. I I cannot uh, what would I mean? Because I'm just curious about what that was about. Well, I'm not really sure. I know I got called to come in to the studio and do uh, uh, a record for Tonto. And I said, okay. And they wanted me to overdub uh, a bass track on a track that was already done. And, um, you know, to look at Tonto, it looks like a giant flower. <laughs> and you're sitting in the middle of it. <laughs> oh my God, that is great. That is such an amazing image right there. Yeah, those oscillators were what, six feet by two and a half, something like that. And that was one oscillator. Oh my God. And they had six of them. So you sat inside of a, a flower, basically. A giant uh, wooden flower with buttons. And it had the uh, double-layered keyboard in the middle. And, um, you know, it was just an awesome machine. I mean, awesome looking. You, you would want to go sit down and... <laughs> was it, was it possible? Was, was it mainly only able to create individual parts or overdubs or were, could you fit a whole band in there? No, you couldn't fit a whole band. It was just the machine itself. It right. Was, say a bedroom side booth, which was a vocal booth, but it was um, customized for, for, for that machine. Um, I, this is something that popped out of my head. I have to ask you: there was a there was a club call in Detroit called the Sewer, and uh, Mike Theodore. Did you ever work for Mike Theodore? By the way, no, I don't believe so. He, I mean, not that I reckon. Yeah, so. did he, he 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 and Dennis Coffee were at Golden World together, and then did a lot of work out and in the West Coast, but they discovered this cat, Cisco, Cisco Rodriguez, later that film came out, Searching for Sugar Man. Did you, did you, did you ever know Sugar Man? I don't think so. Did you see the documentary on him, though? The idea where this cat made all these singles in, in, in Detroit, uh, but, you know, was too shy and introverted. Then all of a sudden his records take off in South Africa and he becomes this incredible star 50 years later. Oh yeah. That was remarkable. I wasn't sure if you would ever, because that dude was, you were still kind of in Detroit at that time, but, yeah. um, you know, I, uh, did, did you, can you talk about the first time that you really connected 
with uh, or laid eyes on Narda Michael Walden? Oh, I was with uh, Tommy Bowman. At, right, and, I, Man, and he was he was like in that Mahavishnu kind of bag, you know. Yeah, he was in Mahavishnu, and uh, there was a time that he was with Tommy. And that, that's when I joined the band. Uh, Tommy Bowling Band. Absolutely. I'm curious about, like, your philosophy. I mean, maybe, you know, just the idea of someone like Narda, you know, you're coming in, you're hearing a lot of language in some cases on the drums. It's, it can be kind of frenetic. It's very powerful and yeah it's not jazz fusion but with rock fusion i just wonder like you know how what's your philosophy about you know making sure that your own individual voice is heard but at the same time not overplaying and sort of keeping that that root i just wanted you to talk about that like especially like in any situation when the drummer is really active and and maybe they, it feels good and it sounds good, and you have to figure out how to fit yourself into that. How do you do that? Well, exactly. You you figure it out. You figure how to fit in with that uh, sort of drummer. And uh, mainly, it was the first time that I came across even played that kind of music. And with Tommy, it was it was a totally free like we talked about these other days like he would have the form and uh you know what a great guitar player I mean he, he's soulful <sighs> and then just uh with us as a trio we didn't we didn't record a lot you know I think the only thing that we did was possibly live but we did. Uh, he, he he had just come out with the album teaser first, right? And so I didn't play on that record. I played on Private Eyes. Yeah, I'm looking at Private Eyes here. That was it says Cherokee Studios in L.A., Trident Studios in London. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and Carmine Carmen Carmen Apiece. I was on drums. Uh, Bobby Hall, my dear friend. Uh, wow. So, and you were singing as well. Yeah. So you would play in a trio with Narda, Tommy, and yourself? Well, yeah. Narda, Tommy, Norma Bell on sax. Norma Jean Bell. Yes. Wow. And, and uh, wow. Mark Stein. On keyboards. Yeah. Bobby Burge was another drummer. Um, yes, Bobby Burge, yeah. You know, I just, I wonder, like, when you, like, uh, what was the biggest, what was the, I don't know if this is, you know, what was one of the hardest times for you challenged, what was the most challenging time for you as a bass player in terms of, like, was it working with a drummer who, didn't play a lot or did play like wh what would you say was the most i remember talking to a guy like ron tut great the late great drummer and he was like uh 
And he was just like, when, when reggae hit the States, you know, he got this armful of records in Dallas and was just so flump, flummoxed and humbled by the fact that the, the, you know, it was on the one and three instead of the two and four. And he really had to shed on it because it was just so fundamentally different than your traditional American beat. Was there any kind of style of music or uh, that was humbling for Reggie McBride? Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I you know, you make everything sound so easy, uh, you know, but, you know, so the definition of genius is making something that looks difficult very easy, but even the masters, I'm just curious, if it, you know, like with reggae, was that, I mean, maybe it was fascinating. Did you have to shed on it? Was there any type of style of music that you really had to shed on because it was really kind of mind-blowing to you? Well, anything that had a lot of notes, you know, I had to, I, I, I couldn't take it home. I, I just didn't have time to take it home and shed on it. I had to do it right there, right then and there. So, you know, there were a few things that were not written, you know, that I, that I had to uh, get my chops under. And that's with, with, you know, with everything, pretty much, I had to get my chops under it and make sure that uh, I'm playing the right notes and I got the right feel, especially if we were recording. Uh, now, I remember doing a rehearsal with uh, Frank Zappa. Oh, boy. And, uh, you know, they brought out the Black Page, I call it. Absolutely. And I said, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I told Frank, you know, I just, I got to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, 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 he said, how long do you think it'll take? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> I could read a little bit, but I I didn't have all, all the facility to look at that page and really, you know, get my teeth into it. It was complicated. Oh my God! It, 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 I to this day, all those cats—I don't care if it was Tom Fowler, George Duke, or Ralph Humphrey—all those guys. I don't know how they did that. And did it so yeah, well, you know. I don't know how either they, either they could read a little bit, and like you say, they uh, did a woodshed on it, you know, and figured it out, which that makes sense because, you know, everything, you got 30-second notes going in shape. It looks like a snake. And you're going like, well... I know it can be cracked. <laughs> I know it can be done. How long it's going to take, I don't know. Yeah. Incredible. I, take, I don't know. So, so that, that never really materialized. I mean, Frank was like, no. yeah. No, because I, I think, you know, it was an audition. I mean, he had several people 
sort of waiting out in the hallway, you know, I said, well, yeah, I walked out. I said, next. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That is it. You, humbled by the, 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 wow, dude. They, uh, I mean, I wanted to really bad, but I said, I gotta, I gotta tighten up my, my eyes, you know, uh, a, a bit, you know, which, um, uh, I went and studied with Joe Valenti. Now talk about that. I don't know who that is. Who is that? Joe Valenti, uh, he was a guy that if you, you know, he was like the Evelyn Wood of, of speed reading. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And everybody went to him. If, uh, if you couldn't see that shit, you know, if you couldn't see that, you know, he would see it. And he'd say, now slow it down. And uh, I went to him for weeks on end. I mean, I, I went to, for a few months. I went to him. And I started finding out what it is that I'm looking at. I could read chord changes and uh, up until then and simple stuff, you know, but when it came to that, he, uh, he gave me the temperament in order to really slow down and see it. And realize, like, it was sort of like, uh, it was like, um, one of those things where you don't, don't rush it. Like you can see it and then play it correctly. But you, you know, sometimes your fingers want to go faster than your brain, you know? Right, because with me, it ain't you know it ain't about reading something like that. It's right. about getting it under your chops. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So. So so, but it was it's cool in the sense that like you know it wasn't one of those things where you were like trying to get yourself up to a situ get yourself up into a situation where you could go back to Frank and try out. It was just more like this is kind of a weakness and I have to address it in my, for my career. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Frank is definitely like, uh, sort of an outlier. Did, do you remember one of the next opportunities you had where it was a very, maybe it wasn't the black page, but it was one of those, a lot of notes and kind of, you know, shapes and, and you were ready for it that this time after your work with Valenti. Yeah, I was ready for it. And uh, at least uh, I knew in my own heart that I could figure it out and uh, know what it is. Totally. And with that much, that, that, that took me far. You know, I, I never, I would never run across, other than that, that page... I would never run across anything like that because nobody writes like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're, exactly. It's the most insane yeah. thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, you have to be a symphony player or something like that to really appreciate where that's coming from. Did you, did you play, when did you play with John Lee Hooker?
Because uh, I know he no. used to come through the tr- Detroit a lot, but that you didn't play with him back in Detroit, did you? Oh no, yeah, no, I didn't play with him out of Detroit. Uh, it was later on when um, he had an album called John Lee Hooker and Friends. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they called me in to do that. So I think John, I forget John's last name. He was producing. I was working a lot with him, and so he called me for that record. And uh, Jim Keltner on drums. Can you please wait? Hold on. And and was John was it overdubs or was John Lee in the studio with you guys? Oh, John Lee was in the studio with us. We we did it all at the same time. I, this is legendary. Dude, please tell me about your... My, Jim Keltner is a dear friend. I mean, th- can you talk about your what you love about Jim Keltner in terms of his playing? That dude was, is a legendary cat. And not even for any of his drumming. He's just a beautiful person. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Jim. I love his, his playing. It was... Uh, he sounded like two drummers when he played and he did that on purpose what do you mean by that I don't know how you know for instance if he's playing you know the hi-hat he would be playing the cymbal bell at the same time and mixing it in with the hi-hat right 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 you know it, it, it's always something different with him. I mean, <laughs> you think that's because because of, of his jazz background? Was that like a Philly Joe Jones kind of thing, or was that just unique to him? I mean, because a lot of people would say that you know they call him sort of the Elvin Jones of je- uh, of of rock in the sense of he sort of is right. able to play polyrhythmically even in pop music. But what say you? Yeah, I I could see that. Yeah, yeah. and and. I think it was just him. You're darn right it was. He filled in the space where it needed. And it was like, well, when he got finished doing a track, we don't need any percussion because it's already there. What a great <laughs> I mean that. Well, I mean you're a great bass player, but that I mean it's it's a little bit like I love when I hear one drummer and it sounds like three drummers or like you know like it just sounds like there's so much going on and it it's it's that four way coordination you know where you get four things going on in each different uh, appendage you know. Oh yeah, and I've seen him do that with an octopad. When Octopad came, sure, came sure. Out, you know, everybody was going like Octopad. You I mean you can play this pad, and you got sounds coming up. And we were doing a film. We we did this film with um, uh, Sam Moore and uh, hmm. Junior Walker. Wow! And it was called Paper. If you ever get a chance to see it, what was it called? Tape How do you spell it? T-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-E-A-P-E-H-
check it out. Yeah, I gotta get that. Yeah. It's 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 incredible the way the way the, you know the way that it's done because we were backing up and playing playing live. You know, it was kind of a silly movie, but we were playing. The whole story is about playing behind um, uh, Junior Walker and. Uh, and uh, Sam Moore. And they were a team like uh, Sam and Dave. Absolutely. Yeah, like that, yeah. And uh, we did that top to bottom, and Keltner was playing drum. And the, the, the track just came out insane. I thought the whole film was insane. I do. That is in, that is, wait, hold on. You know, because in the past they would, they would, uh, you know, if it was Joe Porcaro, Shelly Mann, Emil Richards, like they would, if they were doing like a Lalo Schifrin film, they'd, they'd, they'd project the film out on a, a big wall to give the, the guys like an idea of the kind of tempo or, you know, the kind of vibe. And then they'd play to the scenes this is going back, but did, is that, how did, how did it turn out? How did you, because you guys were basically trying to at least comp what Junior Walker and Sam were doing. Well, they, they were like a, a, a group. So that's what made it easy. They would get, do a song at a time. And, um, <laughs> We would go in the control room and watch the uh, footage, you know, that they had. Absolutely. No, I'm sorry. We did it live with Perkins at, at Perkins Palace. Perkins Palace. Yeah, in Pasadena. Oh. We had a theater. It's a theater in uh, Pasadena called. Uh, Perkins Palace. Uh, and they recorded the whole thing live. So, this is fascinating. I, I just want to be clear, like, you guys weren't in the film itself playing them. You were just recording inside, you recorded your the music inside Perkins Palace. Well, some of it. And then, most of it was live at, at Perkins Palace. Wow. So you guys are actually in the film? Yeah. Oh, my God. This is insane. Tape heads. Yeah. Yeah, film from 1988. Yeah. It sounds about right. Wow. To, are, is there anything... Musically, that is on your bucket list, is on the Reggie McBride bucket list. I mean, you're one of the coolest cats around. You, you've you done, I mean, I don't know. You never, Have you played a Stone jazz gig ever? I know you're not an upright player, but is there anything you haven't yeah. done that you want to do musically? Well... I mean, I appreciate a lot of different music, and and I appreciate. Uh, I'm like a fan. Sure. And I listen to. Uh, you know, I, I I sort of like it all. 
<laughs> I love all you love all of it. I love all of it. Yeah, and, and I've never been uh, a legitimate upright player. I only played when there was a need for upright on a, a track, a certain track, and uh, I never thought of myself as a legitimate uh, upright player. Totally, but you're telling me that you were, there were times where you would pick up the bass fiddle and, and play it if, if needed? Yes. <sighs> you know, because, I mean, like that, you're saying you weren't a legitimate player, but you could just pick it up and play it. How would you, could you do that? I mean, that's most of the cats that I talked to, I mean, George Porter, he didn't have the armature, armature, armature to play the upright. Um, it's using a totally different muscle set. I, how did you... Do it so effortless, or maybe I mean, how did that work? Or do you think you're maybe a savant when it comes to music? Well, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It was basically I'm on the spot. Sure. You know, I'm going like, well, they want upright here, and so I had to figure out, you know, intonation. Mostly right there on the spot. So I had my upright, and uh, I would work it on, on it at home, you know, when I had time to uh, sort of practice. But other than that, it was pretty much on the spot. I had to pick pick up the, um, I call it the doghouse. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I got, I got to pick up the upright bass, and I got to play certain passages. I have to play that, so I got to make sure I get those notes out on my fingers, and somehow make it sound like, you know, a real upright player. So I got that in my head, you know, what a real upright player would play, and sort of uh, embellished on that. Uh, who were some of the upright cats that you? I mean, did you know Ray Brown? Did you? Yeah. Like, who were the cat, like the upright guys that you, even growing up, Paul Chambers or any of those cats? Yeah. Like, I mean, those. Oh, I, Paul Chambers, yeah. Jamerson was an upright player. He was a, he was a jazzer. Uh, mm -hmm. I, the, the other question would be like, do you remember the first? Because you said it was on the spot. You know, it was in the studio. It was needed. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first time someone's like, "Hey, Reggie." We need you to play the bass fiddle. Can you can you can you can you do this? And you and you pulled it off. Yeah. Uh, when we were in England you know, with Van Morrison, and uh, either Van spoke up about it, or either Max spoke up about it. Can can you play a play upright? You know, we were, and we were in the country, out in the country in um, in England. Uh, I forget the name of the studio. But, um, you know, it was like, okay, let's make a call and get an upright in here. <laughs> and you're like, oh, boy. I mean, you're like, I don't even know. I, you know, that's insane. Yeah, it's, it's insane, totally. You know, but I knew, you know, at least what it felt like to play the upright and what it should sound like. So I ended up playing on a cut that we did 
That is so amazing. I mean, because that, th- I mean, there's a the whole tuning system for that, too. That, I mean, that just, to me, like, well, first of all, Reggie, Mc- the, the, the amount of variations, I just want to make sure that this is accurate. Yeah. Variations, Reggie McBride, R. McBride, Reggie Ratmaster McBride, Reggie Shack McBride, Reggie the Colonel McBride. <laughs> Reggie McBride, Reggie McBride, Reggie McBride, Reginald McBride. <laughs> I mean, dude. I mean, dude. I love the nicknames. I mean, you. It, it was. Uh, are those all th- names that you've been called? Yeah, oh, I love it. <laughs> you know, so you know, just going back to the other question. I mean, do, would, is part of you thinking that maybe you would, even though it might be. You would want do a little more work with the upright, it, you know? Is that a challenge? Is that something you think about? Or I, I, I just wonder, like, with you guys at this point, your generation. I mean, what is still inspiring for you? Like, what, what is, what still really gets you excited about the process of making music and playing music? Uh, not that you don't, you're not a fan, but I'm talking about the actual application of playing. Like, what is still inspiring for you? Well, the sound, the uh, how it's going to turn out in the track, and uh, challenging myself and making sure that everything sounds good and in tune and and it's grooving. It's on point. Absolutely. You find you work with you try to work with a lot of younger cats. Or are you still pretty active? I mean, I know the record, the whole recording process. The idea that you guys were just like dwelling in in the record plant for years is like so insane and cool. But that doesn't happen anymore. It's not even close to that anymore. There's just like a lot of cutting and pasting. When you do, you try to pick and choose the sessions you work on and, and how important is it for you to still cut tracks with human beings together at the same time? Well, I'd love to do it if it were more. Yeah, right. It's not very prevalent, right? No, it's not, it's not really, how you say prevalent now, you know, it's not, uh, you know, I don't, it's, it's hard to do with when you don't have the permission, you know, kind of. It's like, well, I know that the younger people want to do this, and maybe they want to be in the same room. I don't know. But, uh, I, you know, I get some calls from some young people that know about that. They, they, you know, I, I pull this upright out, and they 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 jump. They're like, "What's that? <laughs> You're not going to kill us, are you?" <laughs> the doghouse, dude. You know, it's it's uh, it's highly complicated now because it's just not the same. And I I think that um, you know, beside it, it may be people that have such good samples. You know, they got samples of me. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know you're hundred percent right, but that I mean, it's like, what do you have to say for yourself? Why are you copying somebody else? You know. Yeah. That that to me is the biggest downer, man. Like I get it, I understand it. These are fat beats, great break beats. You're sampled, you know. Indugu's sampled. Uh, everybody's sad. Chuck Rainey. I mean, but that was the. You guys wouldn't want to sample. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that that was your. That wasn't what you guys were about. I mean, you wanted to put your own individual stamp on it. That's what concerns me the most about. Music is a direct reflection of society and culture. And if you are leaning towards conforming and trying to sound like or sample something that has already been done, then there's nothing new there. Maybe there's some catchy hip rap lyrics or something, but instrumentally, musically, the music won't grow if you're going to conform. I wonder what you th- like. What, what when? Because I mean, weren't you always about like? I mean, clearly you wanted to get the call back. You weren't just going to play what you wanted to, and you know, you, you made a name for yourself. But was your motivation to have that Reggie McBride sound, or or always get that? You know, because I mean, you were definitely one of the groove makers, but yet you weren't out there like, oh, I'm just going to. Uh, I just want to copy this guy's playing, or I mean, obviously there weren't samples either. But was individuality a big part of your success? Oh yeah, because that's what I got called for. If a person liked the way you played, they're calling you for you. And I get on some sessions, and I said, "You want me to play it like?" He said, "No, no, 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 no." absolutely man yeah you know that question would always fall in my mind you know they want me to play it like so and so like no we want you we want you right that's why we hired you man that was see that and see nowadays they don't even i mean unfortunately you know like don randy i don't know if you ever worked with him you know he you know, before this guy was part of the wrecking crew, you know, every day, three, four sessions a day, and now he comes in, plugs in his his keyboards, plays the overdub, and leaves. I mean, it's like everything's automated. Everything's done in isolation. It's so humbling, you know. It's a really uh, – and just also the way music is sort of dispersed within the uh, the ability for people to consume it. So many people can just stream it for free. And that was not always the case. I mean, there was a real record industry built up within the music uh, exactly. when you were yeah. coming up. So the whole situation, people could say it's been turned upside on its head, but I also think that the significance of music and the way people perceive music has changed so much where now it's like, oh, music is a musician's gift to the world. You can pay to play or you can play for the door, but it's not really a profession, which really breaks my heart because i mean back when you thank god you feel lucky that you is there a way i'm not trying to turn the clock back but uh some people would say we need a complete dissolution of society which is scary in order for authentic music to come back um what are those i mean what what are what are some encouraging signs Is, is there a light at the end of the tunnel not for you you're already set but for the younger cats, is there anything that gives you hope for the future? And in terms of 
people being able to make a living playing a original spiritual music. Everybody was, I mean, a lot of cats were able to do that in the 50, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It wasn't easy. A lot of people did get ripped off. A lot of people were left high and dry, but all the cats you worked with weren't copying anybody else. They were all being themselves, and they all made a pretty good living doing it. Yeah, that's true. You know, it, it's it's like now um, things have changed so much that there's individual groups of people, I feel, right. that... Uh, one group of people might like this, one group of people like this, and uh, one group of people might know this and uh, know what we what we went through, you know, know and appreciate what we went through. Right. But most people, and I don't know if it's because of what's going on today, um, except whatever's going down and it could be machines it could be uh, popcorn music or or whatever they're desperate and I feel that's the way I feel inside they are when people hear live music young people especially they're blown away absolutely yeah they see us playing and they don't believe it. They, they stick around. And they <laughs> say, wow, this is incredible. But in the market area, that doesn't exist because uh, it's not, well, one, for one thing, it's not live. And we're hearing it as canned music I mean, a lot of times. And um, And there's no artist development, you know? Yeah, I'm wondering about Stevie's trajectory because you joined him when he was already had already had some some big hits. But James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, their first couple albums did not make it to the radio, but the the company right. stayed with them, developed them, and they had great people, great musical connoisseurs around them, not bean counters, but real music heads, got them. And what you talk about now is this panic or this rush, and it's like with te- the technology today, that's like the default. So if you're not going to seek out what came before you, you're going to settle for inanimate, sterile, machine music. And then you actually see cats playing live and going over the edge. And it's, I mean, you know, I'm 45, but music, live music to me is one of the most, if not the only thing that is really healing for me. And I'm not talking about going to the symphony orchestra. I'm just talking about cats that are getting up there and going for it, you know. And I, that's, my, that's like the most healing thing in the world. Only because I've decided to seek out and do 2,000 interviews with all you cats. And, you know, I've chosen to seek out cats that made the real pulse and the real heartbeat and the real music. And I don't think cats today feel, because there's so much instantaneous information out there, they'll settle for what's out there without really seeking, you know? Yeah, and it's hard to hunt, 
hunt for it anyway. That's right. It's true because there's so much and so much of it is so mediocre. You have to really know. Yeah. You know it when you hear it, you know, but it's, uh, it's very, uh, hidden. I mean, it, there's nothing moving air out. And COVID definitely, I mean, I can just tell from my peers, uh, you know, in terms of the the only way you can really make money in music now is by road dogging it because <clears throat> you're not, there's no studio scene. There's very few intellectual property rights. And, uh, uh, you know, you get 14,000 downloads on uh, Spotify, you get about six $6. Um, but you go on the road and you can sell money and you can sell merchandise and make dough. Um, but even now the bar, a lot of bars are still broke. Um, so it's really hard to even yeah. compensate the musicians right now. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's very difficult. And, uh, you know, we needed the bars all along. I mean, when we, we played bars, and uh, they were back in business. And uh, that's all my life. I mean, I, I would play a bar for a while, and then people would come in and drink. And uh, it'd be a four-piece rhythm section. It depends on how good you were. You had to really bring your worth. And uh, I've seen, you know, I come back the next week, and there are more people. I come back the following week, there's more people. And the bar takes off, you know, the bar is making money. Well, and that's the other part of it is that you, you know, you, the residency, it wasn't a one and done situation. I mean, you, Kat, you were there for a week at a time or you'd be there every other week. So people, word would get out re locally and cats could come see you. And now it's like, you're there for one night and then you're, you know, even a jazz tour, you know, Art Blakey used to come in for two weeks at a time. Or a month yeah. at a time, you know. Now you go overseas and you're playing 24 gigs in 26 nights in tw in 24 different countries, you know. Wow, it's incredible. You know, and it, it, there's there's no ability for that regional excitement to to build is what I'm trying to say. Like, it, you know, yeah. and, and so like the speed of, of society, the technology, a whole lot of things. But I will say the one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that. Just I went up to a festival in Idaho a few weeks ago and met a bunch of really scrappy bands that, you know, definitely not at the pro level yet from Utah, Oregon, Washington, Montana. And, I mean, they're doing, they're not up there, like, wanking it. They're, they're really trying to get something across, and they, and the players have their own vibe and personality, and it's just a very restrictive time. I mean, I feel like no matter what society is not, they're much more interested in pacifying people through music than they are for just to have people burn and really be introspective and think. And they, they've, it's been dumbed down a lot. And so that's the challenge for so many younger cats who are so hungry and are really quite talented is how do you find an audience that's really plugged in? How do you find an audience that's really there because they want to hear what you have to say? What are you saying, you know? 
Yeah. And it used to happen automatically. Exactly. We would play, uh, like I say, and the same thing happens on the road. You know, I think you go to one town, and if you are good, word gets out, you get to go to the next town. And uh, and so on. You know, you, you keep going until you build up this audience. That's, uh, and that's your magic word, you know, the audience. What the people want. And then, uh, you know, you go from there. You you have a job, and you keep you keep doing the same thing, and making good music, and satisfying people. And to me, when they walk away with a smile on their face, uh, we've done our job. You absolutely and, uh, with the industry. We we can't. Um, that's very tough to control, you know, because people can throw millions behind it. And, uh, but if they're not getting the revenue, if they don't have it, then it's, they're not going to throw the money at it, you know? Um, well, and then, and then the other, the other part of it is just like Stevie had to clear a certain bar to get a record at Aretha Franklin yeah, there was a certain threshold you had to cross to get a record out. And now they're propping people up who can't even play live. But based on the way they look or they're following, they're building these people up and they're becoming stars and they can't even play or sing. Yeah. And meanwhile, if we try to walk on the stage, they pull, they pull us back. That, well, the company, don't even, the accompanist, that's why I started my show. Yeah, I mean, those, you've been relegated to backbenchers. Don't even show up on the stage. But yeah. there, there's a whole lot of issues here, Reggie, and uh, um, we, we need to keep exploring this. I actually have to go, I have to go get my, my daughter right now, but can I, can we, can I, are you going to be around later? I just wanted to talk to you about a couple of things off air. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, if it could be another day, it would be good. All right. I'll, well, you, you know, I'll, I'll call you later this week or, you know, sometime and we'll yeah. just got a couple of things I wanted to ask you, but, uh, I, dude, yeah, I really, anytime. yeah, man, it's really such a humbling experience to be able to connect with you, man. You're very humble and a lot of grace and like, you, you know, you, you know, you're these interviews that I'm doing will live on long after we've left this planet to inspire other people to hopefully to do the things that we're talking about. So much love to you, man. And I'll talk to you soon. You too. All right, man. All right. Take care, Jake. All right. Be cool, Reggie. All right. Be Bye. Cool.